We are now on 169. I said last week after reading 168 in the last few minutes that there was more to say, but it actually will come out through 169, which is on the same theme, which is about Radha Krishna. So, any questions or comments before we go forward? So, showing the transcendent nature of Krishna's relationship with the gopis, the cowherd girls, Krishna's disciples, the Master told us the following story. Krishna and Radha, his closest gopi disciple, were walking together in the forest. She felt drawn down briefly to the delusion of being a woman whose own dear beloved was Krishna. With sagging shoulders, she said to him, I am feeling very tired. Krishna, well aware of what she was feeling, asked her, Would you like me to carry you? Oh, she was so pleased. Yes, she cried happily, Would you? He bent down to let her jump onto his back. The moment she jumped, however, he disappeared. <laughs> she landed flat on the ground. At once she realized her mistake and cried tearfully, Oh, Krishna Lord, please forgive me. I know that in your true nature you are infinite and that your love is given equally to all. Please come back to me. Krishna appeared again, quite unconcerned at what had occurred, and peacefully they continued their walk through the forest. Now there's just um, there's just so many elements in those two about Radha Krishna and about Swami proposing the one before when Swami spoke to Master about using Radha Krishna stories in the training of the monks, and Master said, you know, the the meaning of those stories is very subtle. Don't use many and be very careful. Uh, of course, um, what 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 what's happening here and I've talked about this several times when we talk about the when I've talked about the traditional prayer that we offer is that the the subtlety of the Indian relationship with God is to take what we know in a human way and then show how our human experience is really just symbolic of the divine experience and is given to us not as an end in itself but as a way of um, making concrete something so much more subtle. So when we pray, we pray Father, Mother, um, Friend, Beloved, Master. And what we're talking about is what they call, these are the classic bhavs. Bhav is a spiritual mood. Um, it's sort of, your bhav is like your own way of approaching the divine. It's a very subtle word and it's a lovely word. And uh, so some people are attracted to God the Father, and that's the whole Christian Bible. That's where Jesus talked about God the Father. Now, when Swami talks about Jesus making God the Father, he was trying to correct the prevalent attitude of the Jewish people at the time to whom he, he was sent. He was an avatar to help correct the Jewish misunderstanding because to them God was a fierce judge. And the um, impersonal, sort of uh, fear-based relationship that the Jews had with the judge, where everything was a question of law and it had to be done in exactly a certain way, um, all the all the faith and heart had gone out of it. That's why Jesus came as an avatar to the Jewish people to correct their misunderstanding. So he brought them from the idea of God, of God being a fearsome judge. 
he tried to bring them to the idea of God being a loving father. And all through the Bible, he's arguing for God being a loving father. Nowadays, we look back on that and um, not we, not we in this room, but our present culture repudiates the patriarchal attitude of Christianity, but they're completely missing the point in doing that because it is a, a classic and perfectly appropriate way to relate to God as your father. That's the impersonal wisdom. And for many people, it's extremely attractive and uh, uh, engenders a great deal of uh, feeling. Um, then we think of God as mother, and that's what Master came to bring. And he was advancing us from the father to the mother. It was impossible to go from the judge to the mother. It was too big a leap. The father, at least, was still impersonal and uh, asking something of us. The mother, by contrast, is represents, and see what these represent is uh, uh, vibrations in the infinite. A mother and father is just the words we use, but there's the impersonal, just the impersonal fact of divine law. And for those who are magnetized by truth, the impersonal fact of divine law is, is just compellingly beautiful. Um, the mother aspect is compassion and mercy. And those who wish to have that, who, who want to have God be the comforter, and that's how Jesus referenced the mother. He, he said, I will send you the comforter, which is about as perfect a word for the feminine aspect of God as you can imagine. So he talked about the heavenly father and the comforter, which is the, fe the feminine, the mother aspect. Father, mother, and then there's friend, um, which is, uh, Master says actually is the most elevated form of love uh, in, in a human way and even in a divine way because friend of friend is equals without compulsion. He said even in the mother-child relationship there's an element of compulsion because the mother gives, once the, the child begins to grow in the mother's womb, the mother has no choice. The baby just grows and is born and she's forced to take care of it. She may also want to, but she has to. <laughs> a friend is a relationship of perfect freedom. And it's just two souls exist, two individuals exist, and it's, it's chosen. If there's no element of compulsion in it. So that's another way that we relate to God. And in Jesus at the end of his life, he said to his disciples, you call me master, but I call you friend. And master is another way to relate to God. But he elevated his disciples to being friends because he wanted them to see themselves as capable of, of, capable of being as he was. That which I do, ye shall do in greater things because he was going to be leaving his disciples and they would have to carry it. And so it was important for them to see themselves both as responsible and also as, as being able to accept the fullness of his uh, message. Last week when I was talking, I believe it was in here I was talking about my accepting responsibility for the building of Ananda first as an act of friendship for Swami and then later I realized that it was my own personal destiny quite apart from that but the first thing that motivated me was that friend to friend you know the, in what Jesus also said the servant takes you know helps his master but the friend takes as his own the master's business and that was exactly what happened to me with Swami at a certain point if it was important to him it was important to me and then 
by the doing of it, my consciousness cleared and I began to see myself in a different light in relationship to it. Beloved, then, is what the Radhakrishna stories at least allegorically represent, which is romantic love. And romantic love, of course, is what uh, pulls so many people, um, just drags them through their lives, is the wish or the desire for romantic love, which is all caught up with physical desire and selfish desires and all kinds of things, but it's also extremely ennobling. I believe last week I mentioned movies that Swami liked, and two um, classic love stories, just movies, that he really liked was An Affair to Remember and one called Random Harvest. Both of these are very old movies. An Affair to Remember has been subsequently remade, but it was the original one that Swami liked. The subsequent ones were modernized and coarsened. The original one was really quite self-sacrificing and very noble. And Random Harvest was the same. And they were beautiful stories of noble, self-sacrificing human love. And Swami was always very moved when he saw them, not um, for what they said about human romance, but what they said about the potential for true love. And I remember he talked about, I believe it was the movie South Pacific, um, which I haven't seen in many years, but it's also a love story between, uh, um, well, a man and a woman. And Swami always talked about a certain moment. It was either in South Pacific or in Sound of Music, and I don't remember which, where there was a moment in the movie where the man and the woman suddenly looked at her, each other and realized that well, what was going to happen between them. And Swami says, for just a moment in the movie, Everything is absolutely silent and still. It was the sound of music. Yeah, but anyway, but he, he always pointed that out. He said, because in that actual, in, in, the, in the purest moment of true love, everything goes into silence and stillness, because that's what we're really touching. Mostly we think of romantic love as passionate and tumultuous and compelling and all of these other things. And that's why Swami pointed that out. Look, right there. You know, that's the moment when they, the, the soul's really connected. And then it comes back down to the human story. But because people are so compelled by that, and it's, and it's true, and oftentimes um, very profound spiritual liter literature sounds like romance. And as, as Master said here, people project upon it their own lustful and selfish desires and imagine that that's what's being described. But in fact, what we're feeling and seeing in a human way is the degeneration of the purity of what our hearts are really being called to. Um, friend, beloved God. The one that isn't included in the prayer is that it's, it's also a valid bob to consider God your own child. And in, in India, this is common. Some people's Ishtadeva will be little Gopal. And, and most of the deities, many of the deities, especially Krishna, there's the baby Gopal, and there's the boy, and then there's the man. But the baby Gopal, and uh, people will take on as sadhana, they'll have a, a, you know, a little a image, a little murti of the baby Gopal, and they will take care of it just like a baby. And there's a very... Uh, a, magnificent story in the life of Sri Ramakrishna of a Brahmin widow 
a woman who was widowed, perhaps in childhood, before her marriage ever even really took place. And so she had to follow, she followed the very, very strict, narrow disciplines of a widow really her entire life. And her chosen deity was Gopal. And she became very, very devoted to the baby Krishna. And then she became so elevated in her relationship to Gopal, and she became a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, that Gopal materialized in her life. And he materialized, only she could see him and Ramakrishna could see him, but no one else could see him. But he materialized as a very impish, naughty little boy. And so when he materialized, he was interrupting her rituals, he was desecrating her offerings, and he was keeping her up at night, you know. And, and then in, as the story's told, she comes just beleaguered and haggard to Ramakrishna. I mean, she was in a, a divine state, but the divine state was a mother taking care of her baby. Because that is another way. That is the most self-sacrificing form of love that there is. So why would it not also be manifested this way? So every person has to find their own way um, and sort of get to know yourself enough to know what is it that really opens your heart. And, and it's a very personal story. It's not one necessarily that we talk about or that we share, but people come to that in their own heart. Swamiji was devoted to the Divine Mother. He, he, he would say that, that the Divine Mother was his his bhav in terms of things. Someone named Shivani, for example, might, like Shivani, who knows, she would be more devoted to Shiva, to the renunciate side of it. That's a little bit more masculine. Just different ways that um, we might see it. Shiva would represent the divine law, the impersonal um, following of divine law. So a person who's more impersonal by nature, as I was saying, Shiva's just a personification of that but you can see what the, the spirit of that would be. Um, so naturally, when Master is training up young brahmacharis, or brahmacharis young or old, you would have to tread very carefully with the romantic bhav, because you could see how easily it could uh, slip over. And in fact, Master in other places says that uh, it's safer to seek God for bliss than for love because love so easily um, falls into emotion and so easily becomes personal if we're concentrating always on loving and feeling God is love. It's not that he said we shouldn't, but it's just, it's just something that we always have to keep in mind. Everybody has a different way of approaching it, but with the young monks, of course, Master would want to be very, very careful and not have them contemplate this beautiful, uh, you know, man and woman picture. And that's why he's saying even those gopis who appeared in the world to be young women who, and, and, and the stories are, you know, how they would just abandon the pot boiling on the stove and the children hungry at the table when they would hear Krishna's flute and they would just go off and just leave everything behind. And it's, it's beautiful stories. The song that um, Swami wrote of Krishna's flute You've called me to the fields. Now I've no place to live. Don't send me back, rejected friend. Um, the line escapes me at the moment. Say, whatever I call mine must end. It's so beautiful. 
And it really is the, you know, the lover's call, just having left everything. Or Swami's song, where has my love gone? You know, long is the night now that he's left me, dimmed my delights. You know, where has he gone? And it's just so, um, they're just such magnificent songs in that bhav, completely different bhav than others. Um, but then this, that story that, that uh, Master tells here about Radha, what Radha's real consciousness was and what her real relationship was to Krishna because there, the, she, he's also illustrating to us we get lost in that romantic bhav and we start acting it out in the way that actually confines us rather than liberates us because so much of that call for romantic love is the desire to be um, singled out as a unique ego and appraised and glorified as a unique ego um, it's not that human love or human romantic love has to be that way but uh, Sometimes when we think of it, that's what we're thinking, really. We want to be singled out. Swami Kriyananda, in several places, writes that when he was married to Rosanna, um, she's a lovely, uh, is still a lovely person with deeply devoted nature, but she had a, a different picture of what their married life would be. And at one point, in dismay, she said to him, I have the feeling that you love everyone as much as you love me. And Swami said he, there was, he had no response to that because it was true. And it, it sounds easy to think that, well, that would be ennobling, but it also can make you feel, where do I fit into this? I mean, that was the whole point, is that I was supposed to fit into this somewhere. You know, and in the end there ideas of where, what their lives should be were too different and they separated. Swami said later he, he felt somewhat badly for, as he put it, for dragging her into it because that was always who he was and it, it wasn't really right of him to have imposed his nature on someone when in fact it wasn't suited for her. Because we learn from being, it's not, it's not like, um, it's not like we don't need that experience. You know, we long for that experience and we, as long as you, as long as you desire something that you feel will make you happy that you haven't yet experienced, you're, you're bound by it. So th there's no point in just <coughs> dismissing it as uh, maya uh, unless you really are standing at a place where it, it isn't appropriate for you to have that experience in this incarnation. You know, this is what brahmacharya and, and uh, sannyas is, which is just the simple repudiation of, I don't want to be singled out. And instead of feeling like an expansive thing to be singled out, it feels like bondage to be tied so tightly to just one individual and be obligated in the same way toward one individual. For some, it's just the answer to a dream. For others, it's a nightmare. Because it really can be either way just depending on where you are in it. But if we're thinking in terms of a divine bhav and the, 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 um, the unique intimacy 
of that relationship is it's very appropriate. And in the, the, the Krishna stories, uh, the one, I, one here I'll come back to in a moment, but in the Krishna, Krishna stories there's the, the, uh, the, what's called the Rasalila, where all the gopis met, you know, all the gopis heard the call of the flute and they were called to meet Krishna in the forest. And all the gopis go thinking that they have a unique um, rendezvous with Krishna. And then the picture that you often see drawn is that all, there's all the gopis are dancing and every one of them has Krishna for a partner. But Krishna just multiplied. And there's, of course there's a profound symbolism to that, which is that we are deeply, profoundly, and limitlessly individually loved by God. And whatever our chosen image of God, the Master loves all of us just the same. That wonderful song we often sing of Dr. Lewis is the Master's love for me. It's just so um, evocative. You know, there is no other love like the Master's love for me, and that's not selfish. In fact, it's uh, the opposite of selfishness. It's when we, we really can recognize who we really are and cease having this sense of uh, egoic-based unworthiness and are willing really to accept. That's where the Bible says, all who received him about Jesus. Why do we not receive? We have all these conflicting vibrations that keep us from being able to merge. And so what the gopis represent, and that's what Master was saying, that they were great sages who wanted to show us how we can just abandon ourselves and abandon everything without regard. You've called me to the fields. Now I have no place to go. I mean, every, I've given up everything just to be with you. And it's a very human story, but what it's really talking about is way transcending that. Just, and so the gopi showed us. And so it, it is really a beautiful story if we take it in the right way. And then we have this little story about Krishna and Radha, where for just a moment Radha forgot who she was with and she forgot who she was and just wanted that satisfaction of bringing it all down to herself and, oh, I feel so tired, would you please carry me? And then all of a sudden he's going to carry her and she's just so pleased. Here I am, the special chosen of Krishna. And he just calmly shows her the folly of it and she immediately learns the lesson and apologizes and then he, as they finish the story, there's no... Um, no oscillation in his commitment or his love to her. She goes through an up and down, but he remains the same. And that's also, there's a, it's a profound lesson in that. We can go through all our ups and downs and behave extremely foolishly, which really, if you looked at it, Radha behaved very foolishly. But she behaved foolishly. She realized her folly. She opened herself back to Krishna and said, Oh my, what could I have been thinking? And then they just calmly continued on their way. It just wasn't necessary. Nothing more needed to be made of it than that. So there's many dear lessons there. Let's see. The other side of it, which is, uh, it's just an, a paradox because at least the way Swamiji and Master lived, you know, they, they did not live austerely. They, they had friends. Master had uh, you know, a, a small circle around him, many of mostly women, but Rajasi, of course, and Dr. Black, uh, Oliver Black, and so on, Oliver, uh, Rajasi especially. 
But just, there were, there always, even a master has people who are close to him in a different way, physically. I mean physically, meaning that they're with him. And so there's an, an acting out of friendship. And it's a, Swamiji would often say, somewhat trying to reassure people, that I'm only one, he said he was only one body and there was just so much time and opportunity to be with people. But he, would, he often told people, he said, don't think that the people who are always with me are closer to me than anyone else. It was just, there was a karma, a friendship that had to be acted out, a debt, a karma, or a, a duty, it would be hard to say. But anyway, it was there. Are there any questions or comments about that? Master was exceedingly expressive. In, I mean, we don't have all the rest of the letters, but the letters to Rajasi and the letters to the Lewises are just... He's just overflowing with affection and enthusiasm. He, he was just so um, uh, exuberant. You, you get a little bit of that from Durga Mata's book, um, and, and a certain amount of it when she talks about uh, driving, down, driving back to Mount Washington after he had died, and how she was just so wishing, this was in the, in the play that we presented, she was so wishing that when they got there, Master would be sitting on the edge of his bed, swinging his legs, and would just greet them as he had always greeted them. And you could just see how much. And the, the Lewises especially, because Dr. Lewis and Master were the same age, and they met when they were in their 20s. And they met when Master was first in this country, before there was any understanding at all of who he was, even though... Dr. Lewis experienced immediately in their first meeting his spiritual stature. Nonetheless, Master was just sort of being in America. He was a foreigner in America and he was getting used to things. And, but, but you can see from the way Swamiji behaved that that's how Master behaved. He was just very unpretentious. In fact, Swamiji said his own experience of Master was a little different than some of the older disciples because in those last few years when Swami knew him, he had withdrawn a lot and had become much more engaged in the impersonal side of, of things. And in, in somewhere, it might be in here, Master says to Swami, maybe it's in the path, be sure and write this down. I seldom speak from this level of impersonal wisdom. And Swamiji actually even says some of the confusion between himself and the women who gained, you know, who began to run SRF after Master's passing and Daya and Tara and Ananda Mata were much senior to Swamiji on the path. Marina Lini Mata was only, had only been there a few years longer than Swami and she came when she was 13. So her years with Master were mostly her teenage years. It wasn't, she was a very young. Um, but the others, but they knew Master in such a different way. They knew him, for one thing, they helped take care of him, you know, they cooked for him and they, they just lived in a very different way with him than Swami did in a completely different period of his life. And so what he presented to Swamiji, as, both as himself, as his intention for the work, and as, it, and as his expectation of Swami as his disciple, was just a whole different reality from what he had presented to them. Also, of course, their karma was different and he, he writes about Diamata, or he says it in various things I've read. He said she just wasn't philosophical. She was 17 when she came. She was from Utah. She never traveled. She had no, she had no uh, education. It, it, because she was just completely devoted. It was, it was, that wasn't a, 
a fault, but it was a fact that she just grew up in a relatively insular way, went into the convent, and then lived for her guru, which, wow, let's have incarnations like that. But it wasn't that he couldn't talk to her, Master couldn't talk to her about his world mission and what was going to be needed in Europe and how we're going to develop India and just all of the kinds of things that he could talk to Swami about because Swami grew up in Europe. He knew that part of the world. He was a linguist. He was highly educated. He was extremely well-read. He was very, very culturally sophisticated. And so Master could speak to him about the transformation of the world and what was going to be needed. And he, there was a, he had a vibration to receive it, to speak to Diamata about that, who'd grown up in Utah and moved to the convent. There was just no place in her, um, in her nature to understand that. And so they were always, always at odds about this. Now, oh, I was talking about those who were close, but, as Swamiji said, you know, Master, they gave Master a great deal of energy. Swamiji said once in that same context, he said, of course you can draw energy from inside, but it's also nice to receive it from others when you're doing a work like this. And they, they, they supported him. They supported him. They just provided a, an atmosphere in which he could relax and would be taken care of. I, I don't mean coddled, but he, but he would be given too instead of always having to be the one who was giving. Because in this very strange way that is impossible for me to get my mind around, these avatars are living in human bodies in a human way. And many of the same human realities apply to them, even though we think not. That's where Swami said, yes, of course, I can get my energy from inside, but it's also nice to get energy from other people, <laughs> have people who are not always taking from him, in other words. He always praised Narayani for that. He said, she just, she, she just gives to me. She doesn't think about taking from me. He sort of said, every one of you, and he was speaking to some of his closest people, and I certainly took it that way, because I was in the room. You know, all of you were also, and he said, I don't fault you for it, but you're also thinking of what you can get from me. He said, Narayani thinks only of what she can give. So, of course, imagine what a support that was just to have the energy. Somebody wasn't being selfish. It was just a fact. It was the way she was made. And she herself speaks of it. So, number 170. Um, Arthur Smith, a minister in the Master's work, left it after my arrival there. The Master told me later, Smith announced to me one day proudly, do you know I never take any of the collection money from the church? It all goes to the work. The moment he said that, I knew he was not for this path. What the Master meant was that such an act, in a true devotee, would have been only natural. It would not have been a cause for pride. <laughs> um, I was remembering this story that Swami often tells, and I've had to... Uh, sometimes when Swami would tell the, a story, it would take me a long time to really understand what the meaning of it was. He, when he was just a child, he, uh, he did something nice, and he, he said to his mother, you know, when Mrs. Jones said so-and-so to me, I just said, I said, thank you very much, Mrs. Jones. Wasn't that nice of me? And his mother said to him, no, it was not nice of you. You just behaved the way you ought to behave. In other words, I'm not going to praise you 
for simply doing that, which is the obvious and natural thing to do. And uh, I've, I've contemplated that in a lot of interesting ways because um, we have different opinions among us about how much we should recognize and praise each other. You know, for great events, for wonderful service. Um, we've, there's been this long discussion about um, having a, a celebration for those who donate money and thanking them for giving money. And, you know, it, it, the, the fundamental rule of fundraising is you thank people who give you money, and all nonprofits are trained to do that. But I, I find, I've always found it difficult. Who is thanking whom? And w when somebody, after we were working on some project, when some longtime church member came up to me and said, did you get the money you needed? I thought, why are you asking me if I got the money I needed? Why aren't you saying, did we get the money we needed? Do we have what we need? And I became very sensitive to anything that made it seem like the interests of the people who perhaps are considered staff are different than the people who have other jobs and attend. How did we, how did we get polarized like this? I know at one spiritual renewal week there was a big point of thanking this person and thanking that person and you know, it seems it's natural to do that. Well, thank you to the retreat staff and to the cooks. And Swami actually afterwards said, but where do you stop? You thank everyone for coming because it was their good energy that made it possible. And you thank the sun for rising and the, you know, the, it's just like, where does it stop? We're all, we're all just doing this together. And he, he was reluctant to single people out and praise them. And I, that's a, that's a, a a suggestion of his that's honored more in the breach than uh, in fact because and I've gradually begun to think of it this way which is when it, and I don't want it to get exaggerated the other way either because that's really we need to be natural and we naturally appreciate each other appreciation is also a sign of appreciation and gratitude is also a sign of refinement so there's a subtle line here which has more to do with ourselves I think than just how we treat each other but it's like Swami's mother saying, no, that wasn't particularly good of you to do that. You just behaved as you ought to. If we support Master's work, if we sacrifice even heroically to support Master's work, if we give a great deal of our time and our resources to support this work, what is there in that that should be singled out to be praised? We're just simply doing what we ought to be doing. And even to sort of either want it or feel the need to offer it to each other, I know this is a bit extreme because I want us to be natural. Somebody cooks a great dinner, you want to say, that was fantastic, let's bring the cooks out and give them a, a round of applause. But in our hearts, even when we're offering it, we, have no, we, we should not be trying to tell people how really remarkable it is that they behaved in a generous way. You, or that they actually think that it's a priority to serve the Guru's work. It's like, where, where does such a thought arise? And this is, I mean, here we're talking about a man who obviously had a samskar. Well, you can see he had many samskars. But it's like the thought that he really had to consciously give this money to Master instead of taking it for himself just indicated that he, he didn't understand enough of what was going on. It wasn't that, you know, Master rejected him for it, but he knew that his level of understanding hadn't, wasn't sufficient. 
But I, I think all of us should just work with that and keep it in mind. I don't know. Um, it, one time when oh, I've never liked the phrase donor's tea because it sounds like we've all promised our kidneys. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's too much. We had a, a funny time once. We were making a, a Netri and I and a, a whole crowd of others were making a huge a fancy dinner when Swami Kriyananda used to host a dinner every year people would pay a very large sum of money to come to that dinner and that money would go to publish his books it was how crystal clarity kept itself going year after year and uh, Netri, Nancy Mayer at Ananda Village would often make that dinner and for many years I would go up for that event and for two or three days I would help her cook we'd cook for days and make this some phenomenal fancy thing we had just we had total fun doing it was really really delightful and early one morning on the day of the event we went over to Malaram's garden to get um, edible flowers so we were picking all the edible flowers because we wanted to decorate the plate with edible flowers so we were getting nasturtiums and I'm not sure what else there was and these beautiful white flowers and I was cutting some of them and uh, Balaram said that's a potato plant and those flowers and those flowers are poisonous. <laughs> so Janaka, you know, is the group of people who have, who have offered to will all their assets to Ananda. So I said, well, I'll just keep them for the Janaka dinner. Wouldn't that be a really good idea? <laughs> Joke. <laughs> Every time I see a potato vine, I think, no, that would make a beautiful design for the... <laughs> all right. It starts when you're a child the microphone yeah it starts when you're a child I'm thinking of Logan my five-year-old Logan and they and you get rewarded for being good you get you know or you get traded for doing something you should do without anything for doing it these days you get you get what you get traded traded like you get you know 15 minutes of TV time for being good uh, eat your dinner. No. You, know, you know, really ridiculous things. Actually, it's complex. Yeah. Um, on the, I'll tell you about this. It has to do with what motivates the child. You go back to, this is part of education for life. In education for life, Swami just divides it into three categories, but it's really the four casts. Shudras will only do the right thing for fear of punishment. Fear of punishment is the only motivating force. Vaisha the motivating force is if there's something in it for me I'll do it Kshatriya will behave properly for the sheer sake of doing the right thing and a Brahmin is motivated by the idea that God will be pleased if I do it so it depends on who the children are and there's a famous story of the Rinsler family in which there were three children and Swamiji was taking photographs of various families in the community for a slideshow and uh, the youngest child, Daniel, the, all the children were small at that point. They're all grown-ups with children of their own mostly. And the two girls were all completely dressed up and ready for the picture. And Daniel was about three, and he wouldn't come out from under the bed. And his, you know, his mother is just mortified. She's on the floor talking to him under the bed, <laughs> trying to explain to him that Swami Kriyananda is here to take his picture. And he, you know, darling, you need to come out from under the bed. <laughs> And then Swami got on the floor and he looked down there and he said, Daniel, 
if you let me take your picture, I'll give you a bar of Swiss chocolate. And Daniel came running out from under the bed (laughs) and just posed, you know, couldn't do enough to make the picture correct. And Susan looked at her son and realized he's a Vaisha. So she started paying him to be good on a really steady basis um, until, because he wasn't really a, a, a gross person by any means, but he was three and, you know, what's in it for me? So she, she motivated him by responding to his Vaisha nature until he gradually realized, and she worked with him sensitively, that he actually enjoyed doing things for people and being good. And, and so she was able to move him, you know, from a little bit from Vaisha um, to a kshatri and to being more noble. Yeah, it's comforting. Yeah, but the thing is you have to, you need to be able to be sensitive enough to know what this child is capable of. And it, it just to take it back into education for life, in the, in the American educational system, it's entirely for shudras and vaishas. Either you'll get punished if you don't do it, or you'll get something for yourself if you do. And there's just no appeal. I mean, in our educational system, high school level especially, it doesn't matter whether you learn anything. There's just nothing in it. There's no, there's no noble motive for doing it. It's just what you can get from it. So children who are above the, the shudra and the vaisha level, sometimes just, they just find the whole system unbearable because it's what's in it for me is the only question. It's the highest question that's asked. Not how am I going to serve the world? How am I going to expand my consciousness? How am I going to become more refined? You know, how am I going to discover truth? Any of these things. And it, it came out, I've told this story before, but it's so amazing to me. Um, a few years ago, there was a cheating scandal at the one of the, I think it was probably Cupertino High School, one of the real high-level high schools, economic class high schools, where the kids, who were very, very smart, just simply hacked into the um, school computer and changed all their grades up. You know? And... When it was discovered, there were two things that happened. First of all, you know, it was a scandal. But the worst of it that the parents really did not understand is the children didn't quite get why the parents were so upset. Because they basically said to their parents and to their teachers, all you ever care about is our grades. You know, we've never been asked what we're actually learning. We've never been asked anything that relates to us. All you care about is our grades, and we found a more efficient way to get them. You know, it, they, had, they were just totally responding to the value system that had been offered to them. And they thought they, were, they had been pretty creative. Yeah. And, I mean, it was another one of those many things that happens with education in this area where our school staff, we all sort of talk to each other, and we think, Do, can we participate in this conversation? And then we all decide, no, I don't think so. I think the premises that we would walk into it are just so far away from the premises others are using. And where is it ever going to come from? Well, anyway, what Master saw here in this... Did you have a question on you? No. What Master saw here in this minister of his was just a consciousness that just wasn't attuned to the reality of it. And for us as devotees, I mean, it's it's a constant... I, I mentioned this, I guess, on Sunday, just ever so slightly but about this um, ourselves thinking of the spiritual path in a Vaisha way. 
I have a letter that I haven't yet been able to answer. I just need to really put my mind to it. Of this man, and he's, I mean, he's, and, and this comes to us, he's struggling on the spiritual path and he's discouraged because he thinks it's a Vaishya relationship. I keep trying and I don't get, you know, what I think I should get. And so then he thinks that God doesn't love him. But it's not that God doesn't love him, it's that it's not a Vaishya relationship. You have to make your relationship, you have to make your relationship with God at least a kshatriya relationship. And a kshatriya relationship says what is the right thing to do. And then you just do it. It's not a question of whether you're going to be rewarded, everybody's going to recognize you. This is Swami very appropriately, Swami's mother very appropriately responding. I'm not going to reward you for being the kind of person you really ought to be. I'm not even going to make a point of it. I'm just going to assume that that's how you're going to behave. And so with us, we reach a point on the spiritual path where we recognize this is simply who I am. This is what I have to do. And it's not, I'm not doing it because if I do it, I get. Even the idea of liberation or bliss or freedom from pain or anything like that. Yes, we know those are the potentials of the path and those are the reasons why we become dedicated to it. But once we become dedicated, it has to go past um, what we're trying to get from it. We just do it because it's the right thing to do. This is where persecution and even martyrdom um, comes to people. I mean, it is attracted to you because then you get to answer the question, why am I really on this path? You know, what do I really believe? And so sometimes everything is contrary um, to what you yourself, the reward you are hoping for. It just doesn't happen. But you don't, you don't uh, repudiate your, your path because where else could I go? It just doesn't make any difference to me what happens in this realm. It's just whatever happens, happens inside myself. I know exactly what I'm doing and I will not be moved. Um, very, very important. And whenever we start getting upset or discouraged, we, we often, if we look at it, we realize we've become Vaisha about it. Why is God doing this to me? I mean, there's two ways to ask, why is God doing this to me? One is an accusation, and the other is a genuine inquiry. Why is God doing this to me? That was where I, very early on my, in my spiritual life, um, developed that mantra that I used. I'm very sincere on the spiritual path. This is what's happening to me. This must be what happens to sincere people on the spiritual path. I was trying to just cut through all of that but I've done so many kriyas, I've been so good, I've served you so much. The only time I ever played Vaisha, I mean, I won't say the only. The one time I very consciously and shamelessly played Vaisha it was in the last uh, week or two before my mother died. After her Parkinson's went to her brain and she started having convulsions, not steadily, but occasionally. You know, just, it got really strange. And, and I was there with her once, and, or maybe I came down after it happened. But, in, you know, I, I was there with her, and she, you know, was having this very strange experience. And so we took her to the hospital, 
and I don't know if they sedated her, if she just calmed down, but she was curled up really tiny, this just little small small lump in this big hospital bed. And we were in some curtained room, but it was much larger than the usual curtained room. And my mother had been struggling with this disease for a long time, and she'd been very courageous. But I looked at her curled up there, and, you know, having seen what we had just been through, and I sort of mentally put all the masters in the room with me. And I said, I've been serving you guys a long time, and I am going to call in a favor here. <laughs> and I just had a very frank conversation. This is not, we are not going on like this. You owe me. <laughs> and within two weeks, she died, which was good. You know, it was the right thing. She was, it was time. And she died. She had a convulsion. She went to the hospital again. She went in the evening, and in the morning she died. It was just, it was perfect. And she was active and capable, you know, just right up to the last couple of weeks. So it was very, very little of that. But it was just, I, I'm making a deal with you guys. I, 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 I mean, I, it was very, I haven't asked for much. <laughs> but I'm asking for it now. <laughs> well, let's take, uh, did, Brenda, wait, did you want to say something, Serenity? Here, let's have you make a comment first. No, no, it's all right. We'll just go, we'll go. I need a better understanding of the difference between Kshatriya and Brahman. Okay. Because if you just say that Brahman is, I do it because God will be pleased, in some ways... Actually, that, that wasn't right. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you called me on that, because that wasn't correct at all. <laughs> and I sort of let it go by, and now the moment of truth has come. A Brahman is one who's so in tune with God that there is no... Um, there's no difference between his own actions and God's will. That you know, a Kshatriya is still a warrior. Kshatriya is still having to discipline himself, to understand the principles, to mold your consciousness and your energy to 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 the right thing. The Brahmin is just so in tune with God that God's will just flows through him effortlessly. That's the ideal. Okay. Thank you. You rescued me. <laughs> okay, now let's take a break. <laughs> I want to make very um, clear, because I could see that there's a way to misunderstand. You know, my, all my talking about praising and lauding each other and gratitude, and I don't really want that to be misunderstood, because it's, it's a very delicate line where we become cold and unnatural toward each other, and I don't want us to become cold and unnatural toward each other. It's, we, we need to just, because each of us, we need to be spontaneous. Wow, look at that. You gave that huge check. That's so fantastic. We're going to be able to do so many great things with that huge check. That was just terrific of you to be able to write that. So it's not just like me, to, you know, it's not just trying to pretend that we're all just at this place, but it's also how we ourselves feel about what we've done and how we regard it. And when I'm talking about it, I'm not talking so much about our interactions with each other. It's just sort of officially, how do we, how do we, work, how do we work with this? It's a dilemma. And I've said myself, we're, no, nobody's in agreement about this. Swamiji made a comment once that's just, nobody pays any attention to it. It's just people are always still singling each other out and praising each other and writing long notes of appreciation. And many people think that's absolutely the best thing that we can do. You know, we have an event, and then you list out everybody who did everything, and we put big published things about how great it was. And I think that's also just fine. Unless you forget 
unless you forget someone. And it, if I was just talking about, you know, someone who, give, who, who makes donations elsewhere and then tells us that the, the money has been donated, I think it's wonderful to hear that. It's like we're all celebrating together that I had extra money and I was able to make this happen. You don't have to keep everything a secret. Um, it, it, unless you're fishing for compliments. Swamiji was, uh, Swamiji was very appreciative, but he was never excessive. You know, somebody uh, gave uh, some, uh, you know, gift of some hundreds of thousands. And Swami said, I'm very grateful we'll be able to put that money to very good use. That was a statement. But he didn't then draw the person up and tell them later and write them long letters of how extraordinary it was. It was, you did a good thing. I see that you did a good thing. Good for you. And now good things will come from it. So he, he would do that, but he wouldn't flatter. And he wouldn't try to win you by repeatedly telling you how great it was or try to buy more from you with that. It would just be extremely appropriate. And treat you or treat you, treat you differently. That's the other. Right. See, if you, if you get into a situation where everybody's getting praised, then it just, you start doing things for the praise. But if you're in a situation with, with genuine love and respect, we appreciate each other and we appreciate each other's efforts, um, that's good too. I mean, that would, we would be uh, callous and unrefined not to. Yes, uh, who's hold, you're holding the mic, Sharmila. Uh-huh. I've had a couple of thoughts. Um, one was just how difficult it is as we come on this path to learn to manage our ego Mm-hmm. And that the ego is so involved in this me, my, mine, and didn't I do a good thing? And um, gradually, you know, we work more and more to be able to let go of that. Right. And one of the things that struck me, I was thinking about, is how I think Swami has said this, and probably many others, that when given something or told something, how it's always offered to the spiritual eye, offered to God, offered to Master, um, as a way of saying, not, not me, not, my, not I, but, you know, God working through me. And, um, but I think it's, it, it, it's really, it's difficult. One has that natural urge to want to feel that somebody's noticed or that I did something that was you know, appreciated. And, and so well, nobody that, likes to be unappreciated. That's what I'm saying. So there's we should that be fine ne- line yeah. between truly being appreciated just right. just for what's, what's good, what's right. I, and also, I have to be fair that Swamiji was more inclined to show greater and more continuous appreciation to people who needed it more than and others who, who he knew didn't need it and didn't even really want it. They were They were confident and comfortable. And so he would... But he never lavished praise on anyone, and he, or he rarely did, but on occasion when it was needed, I have to be fair about this, when he knew it was needed, he would, and would repeatedly thank someone if, they, if he knew they needed it, and also if he knew that it, would, it, wasn't, it wouldn't disbalance them to hear it. So, but but I, don't, I don't like the assumption that... I don't like, I don't like two assumptions. I don't like the assumption that we must be so austere as to never reinforce each other. And I don't like the assumption that we have to follow all the rules of the world either. I think we have to be sincere and appropriate given our context. And uh, 
and work together to help each other to ennoble our own attitudes rather than just fall in to the habits um, that are common. I so often hear people just transfer things that they just think are so important and they're just almost fad values rather than what is really appropriate here. You know, to me it's like when you sacrifice for the spiritual path um, you should be proud of yourself for doing that but you should just know that you know I, I did the right thing I rose to the right occasion and, and it is special and worth noting but it's also perfectly ordinary and what else would a disciple do and those are the, that's the line that I'm always trying to walk I don't want to make it such a big deal but if people are not appreciated their feelings will be hurt mine are hurt too I mean, I know that. You put out a great effort. Nobody ever says boo about it. You sort of, you just want somebody to say, good job, girl. And you can say, yes. <laughs> you know, but I, it's, I, like, I like it more like that, you know. <laughs> we have a few hands here. It's Sai Ganesh. Uh-huh. I was just thinking about that too, and I somehow had a, the other side of the opinion. Um, just about integrating with Ananda, for me, one of the things that was really useful was just how people were not praising because I always felt very alienated it, just anywhere if people are thanking and praising too much. Yeah. It just creates a sense of relaxation to just be if, if that's not always, it's just you're not always having to deal with it. I, for some reason, I pers my personality is to get a little embarrassed when people right. do that and it's right. just very hard for me to relax right. if people are always saying things like that but I, I can see but sometimes I can see why it's important for me to know whether something was right or wrong and that's a feedback that's important right. to receive but also for me it's a very relaxing environment to not have to deal with it all the time you know and see but it's also and it's in one of our affirmations about gratitude if you're not grateful you break the cycle if you just take without gratitude, you break the cycle. So I've always tried to cultivate, I mean, I, it's been a discipline for me, one, to express appreciation. I love to express appreciation of people. But I always try to do it in such a way that it, it serves the greater cause. You know, just like hearing that song today, because you're a singer and you often sing beautifully, you know, hearing that song today was just such a perfect addition to the service. You know, and so then you know that you did a good job and you were noticed and you were appreciated, but it's not like, oh, wow, every time you sing, I mean, like, whoa, I just don't know. <laughs> it's just like, oh, give me a break. <laughs> Big Dial's reading on Sunday. Uh huh. It was, it was so well done. Yes, it but was. But it was so egoless that I had to tell him something. Yeah. And that's and so that's what I told him. It was there was no you there, and it was fabulous. Yeah, and that's the, that's nice praise. You know, you really got yourself out of the way and really managed to pull that off just right. And he did. You're correct. It was exceptionally good. And yeah, see, so you think yourself instead of just throwing flattering words at people, put out a little energy within yourself to really gather a thought that's worth offering, and and say it that way, or an observation that's worth. Um, when we were talking to Swamiji um, a lot, you know, when he would do something that was particularly enjoyable or good in some way, I would always try to think of a way 
um, to say something that had more to it than just, wow, another great talk, Swami. Which, of course, if it was, no harm in saying that. But just trying to find a way to really say something that was meaningful, that moved it beyond, you did a good job and I liked it. Does that make sense? And that, that's a nice way. That's why even when talking about um, our donors' tea, when all the people who are giving their kidneys come together and we talk, or whatever it is, you know, or the Jonica group where people have pledged, you know, their assets later. I think those things are worth noting, and it's, it's good to create magnetism around it. It's not like, because you want to help other people to realize they ought to do it. It's just to think about how to do it. One year we did a, we had a, we, a celebration of uh, mm, generous hearts and joyous spirits. That's what we called it. And that was all the people who had financially supported. And we came and we had a little party together celebrating generous hearts and joyous spirits. And that was all of us. And we were all generous hearts and we were all together. And so that was exactly what it was. It was thank you for supporting. But who's thanking whom? It's just like we're together and look what we've done. And so that, you see how it, it becomes more, uh, everything is better if you're just more conscious. And that's, that's really what it's about. Okay. Have we got that one? This is also, everybody has their own little threads. And I have found over the years that the threads sometimes that I'm picking up and knitting into these patterns, nobody has even noticed or they're just working with them in completely other ways. So that's why we're a community instead of a, uh, a singular, uh, single voice. So I harp on my little thing here for a while, and then other people say, oh, there she goes again, you know, and they'll do what they're doing. So now I've done it. But you see, I have the microphone. <laughs> so, ready? One, seven, one. Oh, I love this. God watches the heart, the Master said. Seek to please him above all. Don't act with the prime motive of pleasing others. Well, that was just the whole discussion we were having, wasn't it? I was struck especially by his next words, which showed how balanced he was in everything he taught. It is even good, he added, to do good for... He says, it, 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 Master went on to say, it is even good, he added, to do good for the sake of praise. That is better than not to be good at all. <laughs> Still... When you do good to please God alone, that is true karma yoga. It is almost as good as meditation. Indeed, it is half meditation. Even if others misunderstand you, God will never misunderstand. Live to feel, feel his smile in your heart. That's so beautifully put, isn't it? But Master adds that there. Even if you're doing good just for the sake of praise, if other people's opinion... See, this is how you progress from Shudra to Vaisha, from Vaisha to Kshatriya. That's why um, Swami could pay Daniel in chocolate to have his picture taken because then Daniel got to be all puffed up and looked how great he was and then got to see himself look really handsome in all the pictures later. And he began to forget that he'd done it for the chocolate and just began to have had this experience of having done the right thing and discovered that it was a really nice experience to have done the right thing. So what teaches us as we progress from Shudra to Vaisha to Kshatriya and ultimately to Brahman is our own experience. Because 
virtue is, is its own reward, but we have to express enough virtue to experience the reward of the peace of mind and the sense of attunement with a greater reality. But if we um, are not motivated to put out the energy, we will never discover that higher level of reality. Pardon me? <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so that's what you have to motivate. Are you talking about your grandson in this case? Yeah. So if we keep buying his good behavior, but what we have to do, we, not that he's my grandson, but what those who are, who are modeling him have to do, is you have to reinforce the real benefit and not allow him just to become cynical, which is what he will become if he's only doing it for money. And it, 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 that, what happens when you, it, it, it degrades a person. Uh, unless he's really, you know, he's, he's really excited and doing things he wouldn't do otherwise for money, if he's growing in it. But if it just becomes, oh well, I just do this and I always get the money, it, it just becomes, it loses its power. Well, whatever it is. But still, you know, children are very, very selfish and very self-centered. And some children are noble, but most aren't. <laughs> or many aren't. And, but if they keep doing the right thing, then they begin to enjoy doing the right thing. They see how happy mommy is when I do the right thing. They see how many more friends they have when they do the right thing. They see how exciting it is to learn and get good grades and really read. They get paid for reading a book, but then the next book they read just because the first one was so interesting. And you just sort of keep moving like that. And so it is with us. We first do it, like Master said, it's better to do it for the praise. We do it for the praise and the recognition, but then we you know, see that we've fed these homeless people or helped these orphans or made a beautiful stained glass window in the church or whatever it might be, and we begin to enjoy it for its own sake. And it makes us feel wonderful inside that, wow, I was able to make that happen. And the next time you're eager to make it happen, you're not thinking about whether everybody's going to notice, you're just going to think about what you're going to make happen. And that, you know, that's how all of us work. That's what karma yoga is. That's what he says. True karma yoga is when you just do it for God, especially in the context of what we're doing, because we are doing it for God, doing it for Guru. That's what I found out. I started really... Um, dedicating myself to building uh, Ananda and I just began to feel so um, privileged wow I'm really actually doing something that really matters you know this is really going to count it's just like it just became so thrilling and then to, to you know really make things happen that people enjoyed just was so exciting. We used to make these birthday parties for Swamiji. Just these sort of astral things. We'd go off. We, for a long time, we just did them out in this meadow. We just truck all this stuff down there and create. I mean, now it would be very minor compared to what we do. But we'd make a, a pavilion and a seat for him and tables for everyone and food and balloons. And it would just, it, I, that was a particular thing I loved because. There was actually a place we called the Birthday Meadow, which was at the, somewhere at the seclusion retreat. Or was it at the New Land? Not sure which. It was the Easter Meadow at the seclusion retreat. I think the Birthday Meadow was somewhere where the expanding light is. Not certain. But um, 
his birthday parties were particularly marvelous because it was so astral because it would just be the, just a bare, just nowhere. And then we'd create this whole event and then we'd disappear it again. And it became sort of the, the, the metaphor, is that the right word for me, of karma yoga. Because you just do it for the sake of making something beautiful. And then there's just, there's nothing left. It's just gone after that. You've just done it and that's, it was just for the sake of doing it. And we, it, was, it was marvelous. But you, th- those kinds of experiences, you just begin to, oh, I see what's going on here. You know, and we just do way over the top. I mean, that's how we all behave here. Everything we do, we do it. We, we, we see what could be done and then we do what we can imagine doing. We're always just lifting it way up higher. For the, for the sheer joy of it, it would function just fine at a lower level, but we wouldn't function fine at a lower level. Um, and then, then it's, it's great. Okay? So, let's see. And also, he says, karma yoga is almost as good as meditation. Isn't that good news for all the sevakas? Yes, yes. And it's true. And Swami says elsewhere, I think in this book, no, it's in the Patanjali. The best way to overcome the ego is through selfless service. He just says it just as bluntly as that. And I remember at the time when we hit it in the Patanjali book, I spoke about it really big. But here it is also, Master, um, commenting the same way. It's almost as good as meditation. Isn't that interesting? Because the point of meditation is to overcome the ego. And when we serve without self-interest, and, and we constantly put out energy and effort and dedication and concentration without self-interest, that's meditation. I mean, that's what meditation is, is to abandon the thought of self in absorption in a greater reality, and that's what we're doing when we're working in the right way for God, which is why I have all the things I said about making sure that we don't corrupt it for each other, that we appreciate in the right way. You know, that, that, that we appreciate in the right way. That's actually, I think, exactly the phrase that I was looking for. We should show deep and profound gratitude and appreciation for the right thing. You know, for the joy of what fun we had together and it, what a joy it was to have you there. Okay? I think that that will close it off for the evening unless we have a question or comment. Okay. So we read from... Um, one, we just read a few. We started at 169 and we read through 171. Thank you.